welcome to you. Um, you're listening to a podcast in our summer term lecture series of the German Historical Institute. I'm Christina von Hodenberg. I'm the Institute's director. Um, we decided to um, have podcasts this year because of the coronavirus situation, um, but um, months and maybe even half a year before that, we had decided that we would want to have a series on the topic of histories of feminism or histories of feminisms. Um, this is actually a vibrant research field. Um, it is um, very lively with a lot of controversies. Um, there is a lot of international collaboration in this field, but there's also a lot of disagreements what a history of feminism or feminisms actually means, and there's many different approaches that we can learn from. We start off with um, Chiara Bonfiglioli. She is a lecturer in Gender and Women's Studies at the University College Cork, and uh, she has a very international trajectory, I could say. She has a BA from the University of Bologna, and then she did her MA and PhD in the Netherlands at the University of Utrecht. And after that, her postdoc career took her to many different places, um, Edinburgh, um, Pula in Croatia, um, the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Um, did I miss anything, Chiara? Hi, Christina, thank you for the invitation. <laughs> no, you didn't miss anything. So that's, that's where I was before Cork, actually. Edinburgh, yeah, so, Pula in Vienna. Yeah. So uh, welcome to you. Um, also Thank for you. our listeners, I should say um, there's some interesting books that you can turn to if you want to learn more about her research. Um, the most recent one is on um, textile industry and specifically women working in the garment industry in socialist and post-socialist Yugoslavia. Um, and that is titled Women and Industry in the Balkans. The rise and fall of the Yugoslav textile sector. Has that come out already, Chiara? Yes, it came out uh, around uh, at the end of uh, 2019, actually. Yeah, so it came out in the autumn. <laughs> I didn't have a chance to present it yet because of the situation, but it's out. Yeah, wonderful. And the um, talk that she will be presenting today is more... Um, or is is going back even further, I think, at least was inspired by work that she already did for her doctoral dissertation, which was uh, titled Revolutionary Networks, Women's Political and Social Activism in Cold War Italy and Yugoslavia, 1945 to 1957. So that's a bit earlier, um, the, the time frame of that um, in the in the Cold War period. Um, and all her, re her research is... Um, coming from a transnational and um, I should also say intersectional perspective. Um, she's done a lot of oral history, interviewing um, women, different kinds of women, I, I guess. And um, her specific interest is in the history of transnational feminism, I should say. Um, okay, um, Chiara, uh, it's, it's very nice to have you here. Thank so, you so much. Um, so what's the title of the uh, the exact um, talk that you've prepared for us today? So the talk uh, I will give today is titled uh, Communisms, Generations and Waves, 
the cases of Italy, Yugoslavia, and Cuba. And uh, this is a chapter uh, that will come out in an edited volume edited by uh, Agnieszka Mrozik and Anna Artvinska for Routledge, uh, which is going to be dealing with uh, the issue of uh, communism and generations. Okay, so um, so I would say let's hear your talk first, and then um, after that we can actually have a little chat um, and um, question and answer um, uh, once that we've heard your talk. Okay, so over to you. This essay presents an exploratory contribution on the relation between gender, generation, and communism on the basis of the case studies of Italy, Yugoslavia, and Cuba. It focuses in particular on the gendered imaginaries of citizenship characteristic of the generation of activists affiliated with women's mass organizations in the Cold War era. These mass organizations were traditionally connected to the old left, namely to post-1945 socialist and communist parties, and they intersected in different ways with the new left, which encompassed anti-imperialist, student and feminist movements in the 1960s and 1970s. This latter period, in fact, is characterized by the simultaneous overlap and conflict between different generational paradigms of women's and feminist activism, the emancipation one, mainly based on women's socioeconomic rights and institutional reform, and the liberation one, mainly based on gender, sexuality, and grassroots activism. These political and generational paradigms are not only national, but also transnational, largely shaped by the global developments of left-wing parties and movements, and of women's and feminist movements worldwide. Through an exploration of different temporalities of women's and feminist activism in Italy, Yugoslavia and Cuba, this essay aims to challenge the long-standing exclusion of Cold War women's movements, and particularly women's mass organizations, from the Western feminist canon, as well as the linear conceptualization of feminist waves, particularly the second wave. Women's left-wing internationalism during the Cold War, especially in its earlier stages, has attracted significant scholarly attention in the last decade. The internationalization of women's rights through the establishment of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, CSW, in 1946, and the so-called Cultural Cold War, namely the extension of Cold War politics to the terrain of culture and soft diplomacy, brought an intense competition between East and West in the field of women's rights between the late 40s and 1989. Left-wing women's mass organization emerged as a specific transnational phenomenon during the Cold War era, in parallel with the expansion of international communism and the process of decolonization. These mass organizations in the First, Second and Third World were federated transnationally through the Women's International Democratic Federation, or WIDF, an organization founded in 1945 in Paris and relocated to the German Democratic Republic in 1951 until its dismantlement in 1991. While earlier feminist interpretation treated women's mass organization as transmission belts of communist ideology and dismissed their relevance due to their lack of autonomy from party and state institutions, new interpretation have advanced the hypothesis of a 1940s and 1950s middle wave or red wave of women's feminist activism centered around women's citizenship rights, which paved the way for the emergence of the feminist second wave in the 1960s and 70s. As I discussed throughout the essay, however, the concept of feminist waves itself has undergone scrutiny due to its linearity and due to its tendency to reproduce a Western-centered liberal narrative in transnational women's and feminist history. The field of transnational feminism in itself is shaped by the idea of different feminist temporalities in the global south and among migrant, working-class and ethnic minority women in the global north. In line with such developments, authors working on the WIDF 
have questioned the liberal bias of Western historiography and the periodization into waves, which led to an exclusion of Cold War women's mass organizations from the canon due to the left feminist and hence intersectional or socialist feminist political agenda. The research on Cold War women's activism is increasingly highlighting East-West, East-South and South-South internationalist connections. And here I'm only mentioning a couple of names, uh, meaningly uh, Francisca de Han and Christine Godsey when it comes to uh, fresh and innovative work on the WIDF and on East-South connections. In my earlier work, I advanced the idea of the circulation of socialist gender imaginaries of citizenship between Western and Eastern Europe as well as between the so-called developed and developing countries during the Cold War. The strong emphasis put by both blocs on women's rights, despite their opposing gender regime, meant that women's citizenship emerged as a field of political, social and cultural activism after 1945. The WIDF was a fundamental site for internationalist and intergenerational encounters. In this essay, I will follow some of the insights of the existing scholarship and build upon my previous work to reflect upon gender imaginaries of citizenship in three contexts. First, Italy, characterized by the strong presence of the communist and socialist parties on the positional side of the political spectrum, and by the grassroots work of the Union of Italian Women, from 1945 onward. Secondly, Yugoslavia, shaped by the specific form of self-managed market socialism developed after the break with the Soviet Union, and by the presence of institutionalized women's organizing in the form of the Conference for the Social Activity of Women. Third, Cuba, where the establishment of the state-sponsored Federation of Cuban Women in 1960 under the direction of Wilma Castro Espin somehow obscured the memory of the previous work conducted by the Democratic Federation of Cuban Women, founded in 1948 by women belonging to the oppositional Marxist left. All these mass organizations were affiliated to the WIDF in different ways. After being a model branch of the WIDF since 1945, the Yugoslav organizations only partially reintegrated into the WIDF following their expulsion in 1949 due to the Soviet-Yugoslav split in 1948. The Italian UDI similarly abandoned its earlier enthusiastic affiliation to the WIDF and assumed a critical perspective toward the organization from the early 60s onward, as the former perceived the latter as too strongly politicized. The Cuban Women's Organization, and especially the FMC, the Federation of Cuban Women founded in the 1960s, um, instead became a WIDF model branch in the late Cold War and post-colonial political landscape. The relation with feminism was also very different for each of these organizations. In Italy, the UDI was transformed by the very strong student and feminist movement after 1968, and by the generational opposition to the old left, to the point that it turned into an NGO in the early 80s. In Yugoslavia, the Conference for the Social Activity of Women strongly opposed the small dissident post-68 student and feminist initiatives, which also criticized the red bourgeoisie at the head of the socialist state. Yet, feminist activists could publish within official periodicals. In Cuba, generational and gender conflicts were clearly at stake in the opposition between the pre-revolutionary Marxist left and the revolutionary movement which took power in 1959. After the revolution, the island became a reference point for anti-imperialist civil rights and black activists from the United States, Europe and the rest of the world, and also played an important role in second-wave feminist imaginaries, despite the institutionalization of its gender politics and despite the FMC's rejection of the Western radical feminist paradigm. Through an exploration of the interrelations between different political generations and different left-wing gendered imaginaries, 
I aim to challenge the conceptualization of communism and feminism as mutually exclusive ideologies, which is itself a product of Cold War mental mappings. Socialist authorities in Eastern Europe appropriate the theme of women's social and economic equality, which they identified with women's full emancipation, and define liberal feminism as a bourgeois phenomenon, far from the interest of the majority of women. Western liberal discourse conversely privileged women's political and civil rights, discrediting women's demands for social and economic justice as a form of communist propaganda. Within women's and feminist movements, however, demands for political, civil and socio-economic rights often coexisted. The second wave, notably, was more intersectional and multiracial than it is usually portrayed in its canonical hegemonic representations focused on white middle-class women's activism. While the liberal and radical white feminist paradigm typical of Western Europe and the United States often posited women's interests as opposed to those of the state and defined autonomy from party and state institutions as the leading principle of women's activism, other forms of socialist, anti-racist and anti-colonial feminism in Western and Eastern Europe, but especially in the Global South, drew connection between gender equality, class and racial equality, as well as equality between nation-states in particular during the United Nations Decade for Women, between 1975 and 1985. In the following sections, I will thematize issues of generation, gender and temporalities of women's activism through the chosen case studies, first by focusing on the post-war paradigm of women's emancipation, and then by analyzing the interconnection between different political generations of women, thus expanding and problematizing the representation of the second wave feminist generation of the 1960s and 70s as fundamentally separate and opposed to the communist generation active in the red wave of the 1940s and 1950s. The paradigm of women's emancipation proposed after World War II by the WIDF and its national branches was largely modeled on the Marxist solution to the women's question, namely the idea that women's inclusion into the politics could be achieved through their full participation to productive labor while women's duties in the domestic and private sphere could be socialized by the state through public services. Women's rights as workers and mothers prominently featured alongside WIDF campaigns for peace and against fascism and imperialism. The so-called working mother gender contract and social motherhood as its main tenet circulated across Cold War borders and became a strong feature of the gender politics proposed by communist parties across Europe as well as globally. Another transnational characteristic of post-war women's activism was the view of women's organizations as front organizations, mobilized in including the widest possible numbers of women, first during the anti-fascist resistance and then in the post-war period. Often founded during World War II and led by former female partisans and survivors of concentration camps, women's organizations affiliated to the WIDF did carve out their specific tasks, agendas and activities, based on their respective Communist Party's mandate to deal with women's issues. Also, they often confronted male comrades' reluctance to give up their privileges. The Marxist paradigm of women's emancipation, coupled with the front organization strategy, meant that organizations such as the Anti-Fascist Women's Front of Yugoslavia, or AFEG, and the Union of Italian Women, or UDI, as well as other women's organizations affiliated to the WIDF, truly reached significant numbers of women across generations, ethnicities, and classes, through their sections established in different regions, towns, and neighborhoods. Attempts to involve women in rural areas and to spread literacy and sanitation were especially strong in Yugoslavia, with Afeji women targeting the most backward post-Ottoman regions. In Italy, communist and socialist women belonging to the UDI took the task of documenting the living and working condition of the most downtrodden women in society. 
Fighting widespread conservatism, the UDI became an amplifier of social struggles and defended in particular the most exploited categories of female workers in the agricultural and industrial sectors. Rice weeders, olive pickers, seasonal laborers, sharecroppers and home workers. The discourse promoted by the WIDF rapidly circulated to the Global South. In Cuba, the Democratic Federation of Cuban Women, or FDMC, specifically addressed women's everyday lives by establishing mothers' committees in each town. The FDMC also paid specific attention to the position of rural and working-class black women. While Cuban women praised Soviet childcare services and used the Soviet example to mobilize for similar provisions in their own context, something similar happened in Italy, with the Campaign for the Protection of Lavoratrici Madri, or Workers' Mothers, which established new maternity leave provisions in 1950, and which was focused on the idea of social motherhood, namely safe protection for working mothers. The transnational influence of the Marxist working mother gender contract, therefore, extended well beyond state socialist regimes and well beyond Central and Eastern Europe. The idea that women's status was a sign of civilizational and economic progress and modernization affected the language of United Nations expert meetings and committees, as well as the Cold War competition on the terrain of women's rights. An example of this is the famous kitchen debate between Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon in 1959, when the two statesmen argued about the superiority of the capitalist and socialist systems on the basis of their benefits for housewives, in front of a kitchen cabinet showcased during the American National Exhibition in Moscow. The empiricist stance of state socialist regimes and Marxist-oriented parties and movements across the world meant that the competition on the terrain of women's rights was often waged through hard data and statistics, and through the idea of women's rights and status as being inextricably dependent upon wider social and economic progress. This approach was present even in countries that had departed from the Soviet model, such as Yugoslavia, after being its enthusiastic followers. A leading proponent of this approach, in fact, was Slovenian politician Vida Tomšić, a former partisan during World War II, who led Yugoslav gender and welfare politics from 1945 onward, negotiating the international isolation caused by Yugoslav women's expulsion from the WIDF in 1949, and engaging in self-diplomacy on the terrain of gender within the non-aligned movement. Tomšić was also among the proponents of the dissolution of the Anti-Fascist Women's Front in 1953 and of its replacement with the dissenter women's societies incorporated in the Socialist Alliance under the head of the Union of Women's Societies. This institutional transformation followed from the idea that women-only front organization had to work in cooperation with other political and social bodies in view of a socialist society, while avoiding feminist and sectarian tendencies which would separate women's concerns from wider class-based societal concerns. Such institutional and class-based approaches to gender issues were still firmly in place within transnational Communist Party politics in the 1960s, even among a younger generation of revolutionary leaders who did not take part in the anti-fascist resistance during World War II. In Cuba, after the revolution, the newly established Federation of Cuban Women, under the direction of young revolutionary Vilma Castro Espin, regrouped and co-opted previous women's groups belonging to the Marxist left, to bring its focus towards the construction of the new Cuban socialist society. Women's pre-revolutionary and revolutionary activism, thus, was somehow tamed by the institutionalization of the FMC. The FMC was in charge of a network of children's circles, Circulos Infantiles, which provided extensive childcare and also attended to the education and training of working-class women, particularly those who used to work as prostitutes or domestic servants before the revolution, as well as to peasant women. An institutionalized, state-based perspective was also characteristic of women's organizations in Western Europe, such as the Italian UDI, 
which nonetheless had assumed a position of relative autonomy from the Italian Communist and Socialist parties, to which its members belonged, and which had also distanced itself from the WIDF due to its excessive politicization. Innovatively, the Italian Communist Party and the UDI defined the woman question as a national question, which went beyond class from 1957 onward, on par with the Southern question that is the long-standing issue of underdevelopment in the Italian South. Its approach to women's rights, however, firmly rested upon the idea that women's rights were ultimately to be tackled through institutional reform and women's social and political participation. Even after the process of de-Stalinization started with Stalin deaths in 1953 and continued with the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1956, the gendered imaginaries circulating across borders within left-wing organizations were largely based on the idea of women's participation in labor, politics and the welfare state. Political, social and economic progress was portrayed as the basis for women's self-realization, as shown in the 1962 piece of reportage published in Noi Donne, We Women, the periodical produced by the Union of Italian Women. A delegation of five Italian female journalists of different political orientations had visited Yugoslavia as hosts of the local women's organization. In a lengthy entry, Giulietta Ascoli detailed her visits to textile factories, workers' councils, vocational schools, kindergartens, neighborhood school councils, and orphanages. Discussing the lives of the Yugoslav women they encountered and the broader opportunities for self-realization that had been created in the space of a generation through literacy, work and welfare, a particular emphasis was placed on 18-year-old Ljubica, the president of a workers' council in a textile factory in Macedonia, who had earned a high school diploma despite the fact that her mother grew up illiterate. Another woman who was given prominence in the report was Joska, a 40-year-old who had agreed on amicable divorce and who found a life purpose in a friendship and social activities. Her ability to build her self-worth as a divorcee seemed especially revolutionary when compared to Italian women's experiences of overt legal discrimination in the public and private sphere, and to their inability to access divorce. Overall, the Italian reporter appeared to be very impressed by the socialist organization of politics, welfare and everyday life in Yugoslavia, which is women's inclusion and participation. A similar positive view of women's integration within the political sphere and in the sphere of labor in Cuba can be found in early 1960s accounts of U.S. feminists, according to Elizabeth Volosin's dissertation on U.S. feminist engagement with the Cuban and Nicaraguan revolutions. The Cuban revolution, in particular, was hailed by U.S. feminists in the 1960s as a successful example of women's integration into the labor force and into political institutions, particularly at a time when U.S. women were fighting against labor discrimination at home. It is only from the 1970s onward, with the emergence of radical feminism, that this generational, state-led paradigm of women's emancipation became increasingly criticized, often by the very same individuals who had appropriated it earlier, such as US feminist writer Margaret Randall. Feminist critiques of socialist gender politics, as well as in argues, I quote, reflected a feeling of alienation from a class-based framework in the intellectual feminist movement in the West and the reorientation of these activists' and academics' priorities of analysis." End of quote. In the following section, I will discuss the ways in which the post-war emancipation paradigm intersected and transformed in its interaction with the new emerging feminist paradigm of women's liberation in the 1970s, and how this paradigm shift shaped the dominant representation of the other women's movement, meaning a transnational generation of women engaged in left-wing political parties and state socialist women's organizations. As Dorothy Sukobel has argued for the U.S. context, the two-way framework commonly used in historical periodization, I quote, assumes a half-century that was devoid of waves, which flies in the face of the now voluminous literature documenting activism during this 50 years' trough, end of quote. 
She suggests to add a wave or to adjust the periodization and, I quote, make a case for a long women's movement, one that had a broad social justice agenda rooted in the post-war era labor and civil rights movements that bears reclaiming, end of quote. When reflecting critically on the wave metaphor, moreover, scholars have suggested to go beyond a narrative that is rooted in the development of white, middle-class radical feminism, and to account instead for other forms of working-class socialist and black feminist activism simultaneously to the widely acknowledged second wave of radical feminism. A new inclusive framework can allow us to rediscover a number of women who are not usually identified as feminists or as pioneers, and to invite them back within the canon of women's and feminist history, to use the formulation of Claire Hemmings. In the words of Eileen Boris, I quote, closely tied to the meaning of feminism is the issue of who gets defined as a feminist. Power, in part, shape our sense of just who is a feminist, end of quote. The different encounters and activist temporalities present in Italy, Yugoslavia and Cuba make clear that existing wave-based narratives deserve to be challenged through transnational comparisons between Western and non-Western feminist experiences. In the previous section, I noted that a specific gendered imaginary of citizenship and activism circulated across borders, giving rise to a transnational institutional paradigm of women's emancipation associated with the communist and socialist left in places like Yugoslavia, Cuba and Italy. While pre-existing activism on women's issues can be seen as paving the way to the 1960s and 1970s radicalism, the temporalities of feminist engagement significantly differed within these countries, according to the specific national histories, to the degree of institutionalization of gender politics, and to the degree of oppositional space that was present for newly emergent student and feminist movements after the global 1968. In Italy, the partly oppositional character of the communist and socialist parties and the growth of both the student movement and of the ex-parliamentary left pushed UDI members, especially younger ones, to radicalize in a feminist sense and led to numerous encounters and interconnections between older women engaged in the UDI and feminist activists from the early 70s onwards. Conversely, in Yugoslavia, the more limited political space allowed to social movements and the institutional critique of feminism waged by the Conference for the Social Activity of Women meant that Yugoslav feminists had a limited space for activism and critique, which they managed nonetheless to carve out thanks to the country's openness to the West and through translations of Western feminist texts, but only from the late 70s onward. Finally, when it comes to Cuba, the newly established socialist regime incorporated youth and women's radicalism in the socialist institutions, so that while the country was an inspiration to second-wave anti-imperialist feminists in the West, East and Global South, feminism in Cuba only emerged in the 1990s and 2000s, at the time of the so-called third wave. From this comparison, we can note that the feminist paradigm had a stronger influence within the old and new left in Western Europe, while it had a limited impact in state socialist regimes where the space of debate on the woman question was appropriated by state institutions and associated with a broader social and anti-imperialist agenda. State socialist women's organization opposition to feminism, seen as a largely Western, imperial and bourgeois phenomenon, were evident during the discussion which took place during the 1975 World Conference on Women in Mexico City. When state socialist mass organizations allied with women's organizations based in the Global South to argue that women's issues could not be separated from wider demands for a different geopolitical and economic order. Despite the emergence of feminist activism at the transnational level, institutional and socialist approaches to the women question continued to have a significant amount of international credit well into the 80s until the fall of state socialism in 1989. With reference to the interactions between communist and feminist activists, Italy is certainly the place where this intergenerational encounter has been highlighted and documented in more detail. 
In the past decade, new interpretation of the role of the Union of Italian Women and new autobiographies written by women belonging to the anti-fascist and communist generation have highlighted the importance of post-war and Cold War activism and the many forms in which it paved the way for the second wave, through advocacy for women's political, economic and social rights from 1945 onward. Nonetheless, the dominant representation of the Italian second wave is still one of a movement that distanced itself from the old and new left, which was primarily focused on gender, the body and the private sphere. The UDI has often been portrayed by scholars as an outdated organization due to its lack of autonomy from the socialist and communist parties. Moreover, one specific strand of Italian feminism, namely radical feminism or feminism of sexual difference, has been often taken to represent the second wave as a whole within Italian feminist historiography. Alternative interpretations have been mainly put forward by scholars based outside of Italy, who emphasize working-class women's double militancy, both within and outside the Communist Party, and their contribution to the significance of the movement in the 1960s and 70s. An important figure in the encounter between the communist and the feminist generation is Luciana Viviani. Born in 1917, she died in 2012. Viviani was born in a family of the Neapolitan bourgeoisie, and she obtained a degree in literature in Naples. She engaged in the anti-fascist resistance in Nazi-occupied Rome, together with her former husband, one of the editors of the paper L'Unità. In 1945, she was in charge of reorganizing the women's commissions of the PC in Milan, and from 1946 she was elected as a communist MP for four terms. She was also among the founders of the UDI, and later in life contributed to the restructuring of the central archive of the organization, editing an anthology of analysis and original documents retracing its history. Since the late 70s, Viviani took part in the feminist movement, particularly in the movement based in Rome, which advocated for contraception, divorce and abortion rights, and which established numerous self-help groups among women. In the last 30 years of her life, Viviani lived in Rome with her partner, feminist philosopher Rosetta Stella, born in 1951. She died in 2016. Stella was also engaged in the UDI in the early phase of her activism, before she became a theorist of sexual difference and feminist theology. Both Viviani and Stella were engaged in the 1982 UDI Congress, which transformed the organization into a grassroots-based NGO, giving up its nationwide hierarchical structure. When I interviewed Luciana Viviani in a Roman home in 2010, she described the initial encounter between communist and feminist activists. At the beginning, she stated, they, the feminists, look at us suspiciously. Feminist activists allegedly accused UDI women of wanting what men had. They said, you want to be the same as men, we want to be different instead. At the same time, Viviani made it clear that while UDI and feminist activists did not share the same political paradigm, the political context led them to work together to obtain divorce and abortion rights. I'm quoting, Certainly, feminism envisaged a feminine figure that was radically different from the one put forward by the emancipation paradigm. Emancipation looked at the society as it was and said, we want to take part in it with the same conditions, while feminism instead said, we do not want to be equal in this kind of society, we fully want to change it. So a huge debate followed. But slowly, slowly, the situation led us to an encounter and to do certain things together. End of quote. The encounter between communist and feminist gender politics happened very differently in socialist Yugoslavia, as made evident by Viviani's visits to the capital of Yugoslavia, Belgrade. Viviani visited Belgrade during the first Congress of the Anti-Fascist Women's Front in June 45. And then, 34 years later, she attended the first feminist international conference held in Yugoslavia in October 78, significantly titled Comrade Woman, The Woman Question, A New Approach, 
Viviani's political stance should have been closer in theory to the one of the official representative of the Yugoslav Women's Mass Organization, the Conference for the Social Activity of Women, for she belonged to the generation engaged in the partisan struggle and in the post-war communist politics through the Union of Italian Women. The Conference for the Social Activity of Women was especially wary of feminist discourses and reprimanded second-wave feminists for their excessively Western orientation, even if young Yugoslav activists could publish in its newspaper, Jena, Woman, and avail themselves of the public space of the Student Cultural Center for their conference. Luciana Viviani, however, appears to be more open to the demands of Yugoslav second-wave feminists than Yugoslav communist officials themselves. While in 1945 she was very much embedded in communist politics, even if the UDI delegation involved communist socialist and Christian democrat women, in 1978 she was greatly influenced by the Italian second-wave feminist movement and thus responsive to feminist initiatives in Yugoslavia. Simultaneously, due to her communist background, Luciana Viviani appeared to be more aware, overall, of the diversity of the historical context and temporality of Yugoslav feminism than other Italian radical feminists who did not experience anti-fascist and communist activism. While notable feminist writers such as Dasha Maraini, Carla Ravioli, and Manuela Fraire felt at odds with Yugoslav women's internal critique of the socialist system and found their stances too moderate, Luciana Viviani established parallels between the Yugoslav feminist agenda and the agenda of the Union of Italian Women. Writing to conference organizer Dunja Blažević, Viviani argued that the meeting had been particularly significant and helped her to better understand, I quote, Yugoslav women's processes of emancipation and liberation, end of quote. Viviani also noted that UDI activists encounter similar problems when building a mass-based agenda. In her letter, she wrote, both of us, in fact, are not basing our analysis or choices within the framework of small groups, which belong to the social and cultural elite. Instead, our field of research touches large sectors of the female population, including its various social, cultural and geographic articulations. She also claimed that mass-based activism meant that women's processes of consciousness raising were necessarily slower and complicated, but ultimately more effective in building an autonomous women's movement. Even if Viviani perhaps did not fully appreciate the autonomous character of the conference and thought that Yugoslav feminists benefited from the same institutional support as Italian feminists, her letter combines both the mass-based institutional paradigm of emancipation and the new liberation paradigm founded on consciousness raising and autonomy. In the course of Luciana Viviani's life, therefore, two different generational paradigms could coexist and complement each other, one founded in women's participation in the anti-fascist struggle and the other founded in the second wave feminist movement. Yet her extraordinary life trajectory also shows that even the concept of generation, similarly to the concept of wave, can be reductive if applied in a static way, especially in the presence of intergenerational exchanges and encounters between women engaged in different social movements and organizations. The entanglements between women's mass organizations and feminist movements in the 70s and 80s deserve further exploration from a transnational perspective in order to fully understand the complexity and multiplicity of women's activism in the course of the 20th century. In 1979, Scottish socialist feminist Nicola Murray criticized Cuban gender politics for the lack of grassroots movements and the absence of consciousness-raising groups, which had impeded, she wrote, women's awareness of their own oppression. Women's limited and segregated participation in the labor market and their traditional labor burden were mentioned as factors which hindered women's liberation in Cuba. Ultimately, the Cuban emancipation paradigm was challenged due to its commitment, she wrote, to economic development over and above the liberation of women. Murray was not the only one to question Cuban gender politics from a feminist socialist perspective. 
Margaret Randall, who had been an enthusiastic supporter of revolutionary Cuba in the 1960s, similarly expressed strong disappointment with the failures of the Cuban emancipation model in the 1980s and 1990s. Similar critiques toward the emancipation paradigm typical of the Marxist left were expressed in the late 1970s and in the 1980s by second-wave feminist activists in Italy and Yugoslavia, both at home and abroad. While Kristen Gotze and Katarina Liskova highlighted the importance of Cold War 1940s and 1950s anti-communist rhetoric in shaping our common knowledge of state socialist gender politics, and while Francisca de Han underlined how the WIDF was systematically undermined and targeted by McCarthyism, second-wave feminist critiques, including socialist feminist ones, also appear to be a factor of crucial significance in the construction of communist and socialist women's organizations as incompatible with the new feminist canon based on women's autonomy and liberation. The generational and transnational divide between communist and feminist activists and feminist activists' disenchantment with the old and new left in the course of the 70s played a role in determining who was defined as a feminist and who was included in the feminist canon. In time, these critiques over women's lack of autonomy and women's double burden came to crystallize as received ideas. The fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the socialist bloc further marginalized the legacy of state socialist women's organizations, which ceased to be represented at the 1995 UN Women's Conference in Beijing, after having a major role in the UN Women's Decade between 1975 and 1985. East-West feminist encounters in the 1990s also had an impact on transnational feminist narratives, since women in newly democratic Eastern Europe seemed to reject Western-style feminism, especially its cultural feminism variety. The long-standing exclusion of communist and socialist women's activism from the feminist canon silences the fact that the debate on the women's question was non-linear, non-homogeneous and most of all transnational. Socialist and communist gendered imaginaries circulated across borders, including within Western European feminist circles, well into the 1970s and the second wave. On the basis of the cases of Italy, Yugoslavia and Cuba, this essay highlighted the interrelations between the lost Cold War red wave and the feminist second wave, or, in other words, between the institutional paradigm of women's emancipation and the grassroots paradigm of women's liberation. These interrelations deserve further exploration, given that women's shifting and entangled subjectivities as revolutionaries, institutional leaders, communists and feminists defy our common knowledge of communism's generations and waves. Um, so, thank you so much for that. That's um, very interesting. Can I just start with a question that I think I will ask all of the um, speakers in our podcast series, and that is... What actually is feminist history for you? What can it bring to our study of the past? Well, for me, feminist history um, is about looking at the ways in which in different places, uh, women, but also some allies, some men, have, have been questioning uh, the status quo, been questioning patriarchy, been questioning the ways in which um, women have been uh, inferiorized and uh, submitted to uh, patriarchal gender norms. And um, as we know, uh, feminism has um, a lot of different declinations and a lot of different varieties. So for me, feminist history is a very plural history, it's a transnational history. Um, and uh, the more I look into the different histories of feminism, the more I see that, you know, in every, in every location, in every uh, place, in every specific epoch, there is a kind of different language for feminism according to uh, the political situation that is being challenged at the moment. 
um, when uh, when I was talking uh, previously about uh, Cuba and Italy and Yugoslavia, you could see that uh, each of these uh, contexts actually had its own specificities as its own uh, really different uh, kind of challenges. So uh, in Yugoslavia, women had to confront a language, a socialist language from the state that was already incorporating, uh, let's say, women's emancipation, while in Italy the, the feminists were somehow in an oppositional side uh, against a, a state that wasn't really reclaiming um, women's emancipation that much. So um, it's it's uh, every time uh, the, the political context is somehow shaping the different kind of feminist languages that we can encounter. Hmm. So for you, there's actually different definitions of feminism that um, we need yeah, to take that, into account when writing yes, the history say, of, of feminist activism. I would say there isn't one feminist history. There are many, many different ones. And within the same context as well, within the same national context, if if we look at things in an intersectional way, we will have, you know, minority rights feminism or um, different kind of feminism uh, belonging to different groups in society, uh, mainstream feminism. Uh, if we look at places like, um, for instance, France, I, I I didn't speak about it today, but uh, I, I worked on uh, the headscarf in France for my, for my BA dissertation, and there were really different kind of uh, ways of conceiving feminism. What is uh, uh, what is emancipation? What is the uh, Muslim headscarf representing for certain? It's uh, oppression mm -hmm. for others can be a sign of empowerment. So uh, every time in a different context, you could see also different different kind of feminism if you look at things more intersectionally. Mm. And um, intersectionally, it's 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 just the word that I now wanted to talk about because we've mm -hmm. used it a lot already. But maybe. Um, we could just define it for our listeners um, and who would be better to define it for us than you. So what does it actually mean, intersectional? Well, intersectionality was a term uh, that was coined uh, initially by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who uh, work uh, in in law in the United States. She's a, she's a, a black feminist uh, scholar and she defined intersectionality as, as um, this kind of uh, crossing uh, railways, you know, that uh, because she, she saw that there was this woman, she was a black woman and she had been discriminated uh, in her job, but uh, her discrimination was not considered because that company hired white women and also hired black men and that black woman was kind of falling in the middle. So she said that this woman was kind of standing at this crossroad, at this intersection, but she wasn't visible because um, all the women were seen as white and all, all, all the blacks were seen as men. So intersectionality has been then uh, studied very much as a concept, but also as a method of research. There's different, uh, there's all sorts of theorization around it. Uh, but basically it's about looking at, um, looking at, uh, at the social reality in a way that incorporates different factors of social dis differentiation, such as gender, but also race, ethnicity, class, um, uh, education, uh, age, um, able bodism and all these different kind of differentiation that can shape a certain reality and certain factors of course will have um, more significance than others so we, we we don't put all these factors on the same on the same level and say okay you know we, we need to do a checklist like a, a shopping list but uh it's important um it, it's important to look at to look at things in a let's say in a deeper way when we look at uh for instance sexism we should ask where is race and when we look at racism we should ask where is gender because as uh, post-colonial mm -hmm. and uh, black feminist scholars have argued um 
gender oppressions are never really uh, disconnected from uh, racialized and ethnicized oppressions. So, so there is really a, a nexus there of, of um, uh, interlocking oppressions somehow. So, so and of course, for your work, class is a very important category. Yeah, then and, as well. okay, then, uh, of course, there's, there's been a lot of attention in post-colonial feminism and uh, black feminism on, on intersection of, of gender and race and ethnicity. But uh, in my work, because I work a lot on um, Eastern Europe and, and uh, the former socialist context, class is also a very important uh, important framework that i that i'm using something that has been a bit marginalized in in, in the last um in the last 30 years but it's very it's a very important actually factor of um of uh, uh, understanding and of social differentiation especially when we look at the 20th century and at the way in which um, mm -hmm. um working class women um came to uh reach uh, education and, and labor in a number of places and then for your work, you obviously take us into the period of the Cold War. Why did mm -hmm. you choose these three countries, Cuba, Italy and Yugoslavia, and not, for example, maybe Russia or something else? Well, for my dissertation, I worked on, uh, on Italy and Yugoslavia um, from 1945 to 1957 and a bit further. And uh, I was interested to compare these two cases from, from Europe, from, let's say, Western Europe, but also, uh, well, Yugoslavia is not technically Eastern Europe, but um, like from, from Eastern and Western Europe, you could say, uh, with a case study from the global south, namely Cuba, where you also have this um, strong circulation of what I call gendered imaginaries of citizenship. Uh, brought by the Cold War, namely this idea that, you know, the socialist system is better at emancipating women. That's something that, uh, that's a kind of uh, this discourse that circulates from uh, from Eastern Europe to Western Europe and, and then also to the Global South, where you have this uh, Cold War competition about, uh, you know, which system is better able to liberate women. So in Cuba, there is very much this discourse as well about the socialist system being the mm -hmm. most equipped to uh, to liberate women. And that's why I wanted to compare um, these uh, three cases and look at the ways in which a certain generation of women somehow interiorize this discourse. Mm -hmm. Well, from the, from the completely different uh, work on the Russian Revolution, uh, I know that there's this um, discussion among researchers whether after every kind of revolution, even a socialist revolution, women are always the ones who find themselves again behind the kitchen sink. And is is that really not true? Um, are you saying that in Eastern Bloc states during the Cold War, women were still better off than in the West, especially if you look at lower class and minority ethnic women? Um, it, it's it's difficult to generalize, of course, and, and that's why I'm um, looking at the specific case of Yugoslavia, which is a bit different from, from the rest of Eastern Europe, because Yugoslavia broke with uh, the Soviet Union in 1948 and uh, created its own uh, self-managing uh, system. Uh, from the 50s onwards but i mean what what i'm trying to uh i'm trying to argue in my work is that we should really look at the uh complex lived experiences of uh socialism and uh other ways in which different women had different experiences during that time we cannot generalize and say you know uh women were uh, thrown back at home after the revolution or um women were um submitted to state patriarchy or women had no agency during communism because when we look at the sources we really see that there were a number of uh, ways in which women could uh, find ways of self-realization and 
but that doesn't mean that there weren't problems. I mean, the, the issue of the double burden is something that has been highlighted by a number of scholars uh, dealing with uh, state socialist regime. And that was something really, really pressing and really difficult for a number of women who enter the workforce. Uh, but at the same time, um, there were there were some forms of empowerment in terms of education and labor. Uh, and that's why... Uh, it's important to look at specific case studies and you know not just having a generalization over the whole ter- over the whole period as well because the, the the cold war is a long time and um the the women who lived in socialist yugoslavia in the 40s and 50s didn't have the same experience as um, their daughters who grew up in the 60s and 70s uh, where the system was much more uh, liberal and uh, with open borders so there were there were really uh, different experiences of lived socialism i would say So so what I find really interesting is the relationship between these different generations of feminist activists and also maybe different generations of feminist paradigms. So do we necessarily have an antagonism? So we have a younger liberation generation and it rejects this older activist approach of political and labor market participation. Or is it not that clear cut? Does the older generation sometimes enable the work of the younger groups, for example? Yes, it isn't that clear cut. That's what I try to argue in my in my talk. Uh, so there are cases like the one I mentioned from Luciana Viviani, for instance, who was a, a UDI activist. She was one of the founder of the Union of Italian Women in um, in Italy during the anti-fascist resistance, and she later became um, a very important figure also in the in the feminist movement, trying to enable young uh, younger women uh, to fight and, for abortion and divorce. Uh, rights. Yeah, you discussed the case of Viviani, but are there actually more figures like Viviani, or is she an outsider? She or, wasn't or, or, an outsider. No, I wouldn't say. I would say that in the case of Italy, there, there was really this kind of strong encounter between this uh, partisan anti-fascist generation and the feminist generation, and of course. I mean, the encounter doesn't mean uh, that uh, that this older generation would change their language or would change their experience. They, they but they will uh, meet at a certain crossroad and they will try to work together. And uh, this is uh, something that you will see also in the writing of Rosanna Rosanda, who's still alive, by the way, uh, who is one of the founder of this dissident paper in Manifesto in 1969. And she had a whole radio program interviewing feminist activists. Uh, but she really much, she always said that she, she was never a feminist, you know, she was a communist. But, but uh, she tried really to understand this feminist language and to, um, to see what was the point what was the kind of different philosophy that came from feminism and 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 this this encounter in the 70s between between uh, the feminist and anti-fascist generation is really important because at that at that moment also uh you have a really outpour of women's history at the moment in which feminism came out there was a really uh, renewed interest in the history of second world war and uh, of women partisans so there, there there was really a lot of intercommunication between the two the, the different generations there um in places like yugoslavia and cuba i should research that more i must say but uh it was more limited because these women from the anti-fascist generation they were part of the state authorities so they um they were not really keen uh, to give that much space to the younger generation even though in places like yugoslavia this younger generation could still publish uh, a number of uh, interesting papers in the official magazines. So it was not all kind of, um, uh, it was not only a, a, say, a generational divide and a conflict, but there was some kind of communication there as well. But this older generation was very much entrenched in its defense of the status quo because the the socialist system was still in place. Mm. Maybe as a last question, um, 
I have myself worked on um, different political generations after 1945, and mm -hmm. I have become um, more and more skeptical of this term of political generations or generations, because I found that it was usually um, after uh, Karl Mannheim, who started and coined the term in the 1920s uh, in the context of Germany and German history, it was usually used for male young intellectuals and male professors. Mm -hmm. And um, it is in a way um, a concept that is built on ideas of male socialization, for example, in mm -hmm. war and at the front, and also male voices in the public sphere, which for a long time in history was mainly <laughs> the public sphere, sphere was meant to be the masculine sphere, mm -hmm. which um, which is kind of um, different from the private feminine sphere. And so I wonder whether it actually makes sense to use the term generations for feminist activists um, who are mostly women, or whether we would have to use a different kind of um, generation conce generational concept when we deal with women. Well, I think a number of events that, uh, that you mentioned, like... World War II or even 1968, these were marking events for even generations of women. Like you could see this in, uh, in this famous uh, book by Luisa Passerini, The Autobiography of a Generation, in which she's interviewing um, different comrades and different activists that were with her in the, in the student movement and in the feminist movement, but also she's putting a lot of her own autoethnography auto uh, in the book. And I, I think, I think it's still important to, to take into account, you know, the, uh, let's say mainstream history and see how uh, feminist movement were connected to it, and um, or even um, in the case of the anti-fascist generation, if we look at, the, at an event like 1956 and the uh, uh, beginning of destalinization, this was something very important for that generation of uh, of activists, especially uh, those who uh, became critical then of um, mainstream uh, communism and the Italian Communist Party, but also like the way in which uh, the revolution in uh, in Hungary was crushed. So, the, we I think it, I think it's important to keep uh, this concept of generation and and of course to see um, how um, women are part of the general timeline, but also how uh, feminism then takes takes its own temporalities in a way. Like after 1968, for instance. Uh, in, both in Italy and Yugoslavia, you have it, feminism is taking its own temporalities. There is this, um, um, there is this um, dissident kind of attitude towards the old left and the new left as well for its patriarchal practices. But at the same time, uh, these activists were coming from the student movements. They, they were really having this anti-authoritarian, anti-authoritarian um, anti background. So I think we should be careful not to, <laughs> not to um, completely give up give up this concept because I think there is, an, there is a generational experience. And in the case of the anti-fascist generation, it, it's really clear that the experience of partisan activism and of um, anti-fascist fighting was a very found, foundational one for many women. And many of these women who um, founded the WIDF, the Women's International Democratic Federation, they were um, partisans, they were um, survivors of concentration camps so, uh, and of labor camps. So I think there is there a, a kind of marking event for them. That is interesting because I think maybe just looking at um, socialist countries during the Cold War teaches you maybe that it may have been different for that generation 
of women um, because of the of the front experience and because of um, the mass organizations and the public voices they had um, then may have been different than for West, Western European women. And the book that you mentioned by Luisa Passerini, I think is also um, something that I would like to recommend to readers because it's a wonderful read and, and very, very interesting. Um, but uh, I absolutely want to thank you for this wonderful talk and uh, taking the time to answer our questions as well. Um, uh, we have our own um, research project here at the German Historical Institute on um, the interaction between mass media and um, emancipation processes, particularly feminist activism during the long 20th century. And mm -hmm. uh, it'd be wonderful to collaborate some more in the context of that project and, and to hear more from you and read more from you in the process. Thank you so that much. Would be great. Thank you so much.